Hello, I'm Kevin Richard. Well, we've all seen the numbers and the trends. As the Delta variant has taken hold in Idaho, childhood cases of COVID-19 have risen to numbers we've never seen before. But what does that mean in terms of children's health? And what does that mean in terms of the state's crowded hospital system? To get some insight from the inside, I sit down this week with Dr. Kenny Bramwell. He is the medical director of the St. Luke Systems Children's Hospital to get a sense of what's going on in the hospitals and what's going on with kids. Here's our conversation. Well, Dr. Bramwell, overwhelming, stressful times for all of you in the hospitals, so I really appreciate you taking the time to talk this week. Why don't you just begin by giving us a sense of the state of things in the pediatric unit in the middle of the surgery? What are you seeing? Just paint a picture, because most Idahoans aren't seeing this firsthand. Right. Uh, I, I think what most people are seeing is based predominantly on what we talk about uh, in other news media, where we, we tend to focus on the adult numbers, um, not because people are ignorant of or don't care about the pediatric numbers, but the adult numbers are dramatically larger. Um, in, in broad strokes, if you think about just our population here in Idaho, the, the pediatric patients represent about 20% of the population. And then through the majority of COVID, pediatric patients have been about 10% of the COVID patients and about 1% of the COVID admissions to the hospital and about 0.1% of the COVID deaths. So children, um, to a large degree, kind of skate by here. They they are underrepresented in all of those categories. um, And we don't at this point have clear reasons why, um, but we do know that they have much more uh, physiologic reserve than we as adults do. Those of us with gray hair have even less than those of us without gray hair. Um, but the, the, the biggest challenge, I think, is, is really just one of awareness and numbers, as, as you mentioned, Kevin. You know, if, if, if you look at the hospital day to day, we'll usually have a handful of children admitted Uh, with COVID to the Children's Hospital. And we had, say, a week or two ago, we had 300 adults. So even even at the highest numbers, when you compare our seven or eight pediatric patients with 300, it's it's hard to get a lot of attention for that small of a number. But the case numbers are creeping up as far as child cases and as far as the child hospitalizations, those numbers are creeping upward a little bit. How much of a difference is that making? Yeah, actually, the, the, the numbers have spiked and, and are up the highest they've been in the entire pandemic. If, if we look back over, say, the spring of 2020, we would have a few patients a month. Um, and then through much of last summer and early last fall, we would have probably two patients a week. Uh, with COVID who needed to be admitted to the hospital. Last December, uh, until recently, was the highest number we'd ever had, and that was 17 patients in a month, so about four a week, maybe a little bit more. And then it, it then kind of quieted down to a dull roar, where we would have four or five or six patients every month uh, within the children's hospital with COVID. So it was there, there were always a few. Um, it was never overwhelming. Then when the Delta wave arrived in late summer, um, we saw a spike again. August, we saw 12 patients, and in September we saw or admitted 30. 
So almost double what we had had in any prior month, uh, twice as high as the biggest spike we had had. So it's actually five or six times our average and then twice the prior spike. So September uh, and, and so far October have been tremendously uh, busier than the other months. And on the ground, how does that change operations in pediatrics? I mean, how does that affect space, uh, availability of beds, uh, pressure on your staff, protocols? I mean, what's different in October of 2021 relative to a normal October? Sure. So so usually what happens within the children's hospitals, we have a, a fairly dramatic seasonal, seasonal variation where um, respiratory season, which makes many of us sort of shudder and, and, and get a little nervous, usually starts in December and lasts until March or April. And the, the main viral culprits during respiratory season um, are the influenza strains that come through that particular year, as well as a virus called RSV, which is the sort of the big bugaboo and the one that sort of fills children's hospitals every winter um, because it's it's so problematic for young children to catch and to get through. Those are the those are the big problems year to year. Um, in comparison, uh, you know, you add the, the 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 COVID virus into all this. Um, COVID is is a bit of a minor player as far as how many patients get admitted to the hospital compared to those other two viruses. But what was interesting, it turns out, uh, we, we did a bit of an experiment last year without intending to. It turns out that the the, the various things that we were doing as a society, um, we were being really compulsive about washing our hands and washing our offices. Uh, some of us were being a little crazy and were washing our mail and our groceries. But we were, at the very least, we were washing more. Um, secondarily, we were spacing a lot. And uh, thirdly, we were wearing masks. And, and it turns out that when we were being very diligent as a society about wearing masks, not only was COVID controlled, but RSV was controlled. And flu Influenza was controlled. Was controlled. Mm-hmm. Everything. Bacterial infections were controlled. We had quiet or, or relatively quiet months during respiratory season last year. As I mentioned earlier, RSV is the culprit for which the hospital is usually full for months uh, through respiratory season in a normal year. During the fall of 2020 and the, and the winter of 2021, we did not see a single case of RSV in our children's hospital. Not, not a single case. And, and that's usually the biggest problem for four or five months. And, and we have to modify how we do things. So, so that didn't happen last year. This is, I'm afraid, a little long-winded, Kevin, and I'm sorry. No, no. But what, I, what I'm getting to is what happened in May when the CDC said, hey, we think that for vaccinated people, you can take your masks off in most settings. And we think for unvaccinated people, you need to keep wearing masks. Well, what society basically did was the people who were wearing masks said, oh, good, maybe I'll take my mask off a little now. And the people who weren't wearing masks or didn't get vaccinated said, I never wanted to wear a mask anyway. I'm not going to wear it now. So so everything opened up in May. And, and we had some weeks over the summer where the children's hospital was filled up largely with RSV cases. So the, the kids who didn't get RSV last winter 
got it this summer. And, and to a degree, we're still dealing with that. We're still dealing with um, respiratory season in October rather than last winter. So we're, we're still catching up a bit for the infants who didn't get it last year. Sorry, that, that went on a bit. No, but it leads me to my next question. I mean, you're in crisis standards of care, and that's largely due to the surge in adult patients, adult COVID patients. But there has to be an effect on how you can treat pediatric patients, not just COVID-19 patients, but any pediatric patient with any condition that comes in. Oh, sure. Well, what 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 the crisis standards of care means is that the hospital is overwhelmed that the parade of patients who are sick enough to seek care has overwhelmed our ability to keep up. And, and in essence, the state is giving us a pass, not to, not, to, not to stop providing care, but they're saying, hey, do the best that you can, modify things if you need to, we get it, uh, you're losing, and, and, and we're gonna let you sort of bend the rules a little. No one is saying we're not gonna give people care or, uh, but we are asking people, for example, when they come and see uh, my colleagues and me in the emergency department, you know, if, if, if you've lived in, in, in Idaho for some time, you're used to going to the emergency department and not waiting. You're used to going in and getting seen quickly and people are nice and people are fast and, and you get an answer. Um, that hasn't been the case for the last few months. Um, the, the, I had a patient uh, about two months ago who, who waited in the front of the ER with his dislocated shoulder for three hours before we could get him into a room. Mm. So, so, so what crisis of standards of care really means is um, everything is slower. Not that people are mean to you, but that everything is slower. So it takes longer to get into a room when you go to the ER. It takes longer for your... Uh, blood tests and CAT scans to get done because the, the we have patients that have totally filled up the ER and the hospital, and it takes longer for you to go upstairs uh, once you uh, are determined to be sick enough to need to stay in the hospital for a few days. And then once you're upstairs, it, it takes longer for things to happen there because there we're, we're we're just out of beds. It's it's sort of a it's sort of a disaster drill, but instead of this being due to uh, uh, 25 people who are in a bus accident, this is this is due to hundreds of people every day who aren't vaccinated, but 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 still come to the hospital. And I do want to get to vaccinations as it as it involves children here in a couple of minutes, but I want to take take us back to what you were saying at the very beginning about how COVID affects children as opposed to how it affects adults. Is that holding true with the Delta variant? Is the Delta variant, does it pose different risks for children as opposed to previous strains of the coronavirus? Or is it just more contagious and we're just seeing more cases simply because of its, you know, its transmissibility? Sure, that's a great question. What, what I'll say that we know so far is that COVID, the Delta variant is so contagious that we are seeing far more admissions than we have seen before. We are not seeing any more death than we had seen before. We didn't have any death with other variants with children and we're not having any death with uh, this Delta variant so far. So so we're not seeing the, the catastrophic outcomes that we all worry about. We are seeing, like I said, far more patients admitted 
than other months and with other variants. It's probably still a bit early to say if the complications of COVID uh, with the Delta variant are going to be different. And by that, I mean specifically uh, MISC, uh, which is a uh, sort of a delayed complication that happens with children, uh, particularly uh, where four to six weeks after they, they get COVID, they have diffuse inflammation in their body. And it may affect their skin or their lungs or their heart um, or their blood pressure, uh, as well as other systems. And, and that tends to be a delayed one. So it, it's hard for me to say uh, it, how that's going to play out. The, the, the MISC could be more problematic or more prevalent. Uh, another complication we worry about is myocarditis or inflammation around the heart or of the heart muscle itself. Um, and, and that's also a typically a delayed complication. So, so in short, we are seeing far more patients admitted, like you, like you mentioned, Kevin, we are not seeing uh, catastrophic deaths and the, the sort of other complications. Uh, we probably need more time. One, one thing I should share is, is we aren't testing patients who get admitted to the hospital to see which variant they have. Right. Um, the, the, the variant data that we have are largely either from uh, water studies where we're looking at what, what viruses are being shed in people's in wastewater. Stool. Right. Yeah, wastewater, exactly. Or um, uh, state labs that are doing surveillance testing about how prevalent are each of the, the subcategories or each of the, the, the variants. Um, but we're, we're not doing it. Say, for example, if you if you come to your pediatrics office and you need to be tested for COVID, we, we are testing you for do you have it or do you not? We are not testing you for is this the Delta variant or not? Because largely uh, there, there's not a change in treatment based on the subtype or the variant that you have. Uh, I want to ask a question about kind of public perception of the Delta variant as it relates to, to kids. Um, you know, we hear from readers, and I'm sure you hear from folks in the community saying, well, we're not seeing high hospitalization rates, and to date we have not seen an Idaho child die of COVID-19. Does that feed into sort of a, a public perception that this is maybe not as serious an issue for children? <laughs> well, it, it's a very strange thing, Kevin, where the people seem to choose which data points they're going to emphasize mm -hmm. and they're not logical or consistent. In other words, if, if the thing that people are going to focus on is death, um, we are seeing hundreds of people dying from COVID, uh, that are adults, but those are being ignored because they're adults. <laughs> and, but, but maybe they want to focus on death and children. Um, which is fine, you know, those, those are certainly catastrophic outcomes. I guess what I'm getting at is if death is, is a problematic outcome, it should be all deaths, not just pediatric deaths. Right. And if hospitalization is important, it should be all hospitalizations, not just pediatric hospitalization. So the, 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 the challenge that I have with people who say, well, no children have died. I say, you're, you're, you're right. But, but nationally, the, the, the prevalence of death is about 0.1% in the pediatric population. So for us to have a single death in Idaho, we'll have to have a thousand cases. Uh, 
you know, uh, statistically speaking, we have to have a thousand cases. Um, we, we've had about 150 so far. So if we if we have this go on, let's see, a year and a half, eight. So what, what's that? Ten years, eleven years, twelve years before we get a death, before somebody takes this seriously. I, I guess the way I would answer that is, you're right. We we have not had any pediatric deaths, but I, I don't expect to have any pediatric deaths. Statistically, it shouldn't numbers, be. Exactly. Statistically speaking, we are seeing, you know, a hundred patients a year get admitted with COVID who are pediatric. So that's 10 years before we would likely uh, see a death. We're probably a few weeks away from the vaccine becoming available for five to 11 year olds. How do you think that's going to affect what you see in the hospital, what we're, what we're seeing in the schools? Based maybe on what we're seeing with uh, vaccinations uh, for 12 to 17 year olds and the relatively low rate of vaccinations in, the, in those age groups. Yeah, well, I, I will tell you when when uh, I got to get my initial vaccines uh, back in December and January, I thought this is it. We the cavalry has arrived. Um, this vaccine is safe and effective. People are going to get this vaccine and we will move on. And, and, and it turns out I was wrong that not everybody wanted the vaccine for whatever set of reasons they had discovered. Um, it, it, it turns out that if everybody had gotten the vaccine, uh, we would have moved on and, and, and we would be in a very different place. I'll, I'll share some data from, from back in May, uh, just because I have these on, on top of mind. In, in May, in the country, uh, there were 18,000 deaths from COVID. 18,000, that's a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, 150 of those 18,000 were in patients who were vaccinated. So so you're not mortal because you get a vaccine, you're just far less likely to die. But the other 99%, the other uh, 17,850 patients were unvaccinated who had for whatever set of reasons chosen not to get vaccinated. So, so in, in that month, 99% of the deaths in this country were from people who haven't gotten vaccinated. And, and to a large degree, those numbers have been borne out locally. Um, we have uh, data that we look at all the time about the, the number of patients who get admitted to the hospital and the number of patients who end up in the intensive care unit with COVID and whether they're vaccinated or not. And our local numbers show that you are about 10 times more likely to get admitted to the hospital if you're unvaccinated, and you're about 50 times more likely to end up in the intensive care unit with all the things that happen in the intensive care unit and ventilators and sometimes death. Um, so, so, so the numbers are overwhelmingly compelling, but they, they, they don't seem to sway people. There are people who, who, who believe in vaccinations, um, and there are people who who used to believe in vaccinations. Uh, they just don't believe in this one. Um, and, and, and there are people who maybe don't believe in vaccinations at all. And and the challenge is the the unvaccinated contingency in our state and elsewhere um, is filling up hospitals. And, and and that's our biggest problem. So to so to go back to your question, Kevin, about how I think it's gonna go. You know, I would love nothing more than than for us to run out of vaccine for 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 early teenager kids who, who who qualify. But but so far we've had kind of a paltry um, 
uh, amount of, of, of pediatric patients get vaccinated. And, and this is, you know, this is a parental choice. Uh, these are these are minors and they, and they need parental permission. And, and I have no problem with getting parental permission. I, I think that's the right thing to do. But but the, the number of kids who get vaccinated is going to largely depend on the choices the parents make. And um, where I, I would love nothing more than for this to be an overwhelming uh, new wave of people getting vaccinated, but, but that hasn't happened with other age groups yet. Right. And what's happened with the vaccination rollout is there is this gap between the vaccination rates for 30 to 40 year old adults, the, the parents effectively of these uh, children who are eligible for the vaccine, children who may become available eligible for the vaccine within a few weeks. What's happening there? I mean, obviously, there are some adults who have made the decision. They've looked at the evidence. They've looked at the numbers that you cited and said, OK, this makes sense for me, but not necessarily for their kids. Yeah, it's, it's illogical. I, I, I wish I could understand that better and know what to speak to. You know, um, uh, I, I happen to work with a couple of the school boards here in Idaho, um, some much more than others. Um, and and there are parents who want their children in school and don't want them to wear masks, regardless of any data or suggestions or medical suggestions or medical uh, evidence. Um, and there are also parents who, who, who just want what they want um, because that's what their tribe or friends have told them. Um, I, it, it, it's hard to understand the sort of mob mentality that takes over some of these meetings. Um, it's, it's been, you know, I think really hard for school boards, um, uh, people who are, who are volunteering mm-hmm. and, 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 and then they're being threatened. Um, it, it's, it's no wonder that people are quitting or, or stepping down in droves because of the pressure that's being brought to bear um, by sort of angry parents who, who may or may not have a lot of medical insight. And it leads to me to my last question. And I kind of somewhat know the answer because I had the chance to ask you this a couple of weeks ago. Your concern, your frustration really with what you've seen uh, happening at the school board level, uh, some of the decisions that have been made at this point in time, what does the healthcare community, the pediatric community need most from trustees and parents moving forward? You know, I, I think what people would really like is, 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 a, is, first of all, a bit of grace for the sort of pummeling that's happened to everybody in healthcare for the last year and a half. Certainly that's also happened in the educational world because by default, um, education has has become the biggest location of public discourse about uh, uh, mitigation measures against COVID uh, because no one else has stepped forward and the schools are the place where the overwhelming majority of our of our children spend most of their time. Sure. So they they have been the de facto uh, public health uh, arbiters. So I, I, what I would like to have people do is to talk to their pediatrician, their family doc, uh, their nurse practitioner, their physician assistant, whomever they most uh, believe and, and talk to them about the possibility of getting vaccinated or what that person feels 
the benefits and the, the, the challenges with vaccination for any particular patient of any particular age. You know, I, the, the hardest thing for me to, to understand is that people are people, not everybody, but, but, but many people seem more likely to believe a friend of a friend who knows a nurse on Facebook than they are to believe their primary care provider. And, and that's the part that, that I think is really hard for those of us who deal with the consequences of those decisions is that uh, pe- people are making decisions based on information that is not medically sound. So and, 19 months in, we're still in an education process. Yeah, yeah. Well, Dr. Brimo, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to tell us what you're seeing your perception on the ground and and sharing that with us. Uh, Again, appreciate you making the time for us. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Again, that was Dr. Kenny Bramwell, the medical director of the St. Luke Systems Children's Hospital. We have much more coronavirus coverage on our homepage, idahoednews.org. Every Monday, I publish a blog looking at what's happening with those case numbers, those hospitalizations, and all of the other salient coronavirus numbers. I have a piece that I published on Wednesday looking at what might happen here in the next few weeks as the coronavirus vaccine becomes available for children. We're expecting that 5 to 11-year-olds will be able to get the uh, vaccine within a matter of weeks. What does that mean? And how will that play out? I have a story looking at that. And we have much more at idahoednews.org. I have a piece that I published on Thursday looking at what's happening with school board races around the state. We're seeing some examples of races that are becoming a little bit more pricey than usual and maybe a little bit more partisan. We take a closer look there. And we have full coverage from Thursday. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeehan had, well, I don't think you can really call it a press conference if you don't take questions from the media. Whatever you want to call it, we have full coverage of her appearance at at an elementary school in eastern Idaho to talk about her ongoing dispute with the media over records involving her education indoctrination task force. Devin Bodkin was on the scene. He has a full story. Look for that at idahoednews.org. Check in with us daily next week. It's going to be a busy week. We have the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee in town. They'll be talking about education topics. State Board of Education is going to be meeting next week. And we'll have whatever other breaking news comes along. So follow us at idahoednews.org. Follow us also on Twitter at idahoednews because we'll tweet out our links and bulletins on breaking items. Follow us on Facebook and comment there. And check back next Friday for another edition of the podcast. Until then, I'm Kevin Richard. Stay safe and have a good week.